So this is our final week of a summer series called Spiritually Healthy. I sure hope we've made progress. <laughs> I, I hope we're healthier on this end. And I love bringing us home today. I'm excited about it. Uh, my thanks to others who participated on the teaching team throughout the summer. It's kind of hard to believe we started way back when, but we did and uh, really grateful to them. Super excited about all the topics we've been able to cover and things we've been able to unearth in, in God's word. I feel like we need a little bit of a celebration anytime we come across the finish line on a large series like this. Um, my hope more than anything is that God's used it in your life. It's been helpful. I'd point you back to our website if you need to catch up on some of these messages. So here's the premise. Just as we pay attention to our physical health, so too we need to pay attention to our spiritual health. Uh, today's message has been on the calendar for over three months, which is a kind of a strange thought when you hear about what we're going to talk about. And I pray that God uses my words today. That really is my sincere desire. So just like our physical health, one mark of spiritual health is strength. Okay? We're going to talk about that a little bit today. The whole idea of strength. So spiritually healthy people are strong. That's just a characteristic of what it means to be spiritually healthy. Maybe this is why Paul reminds the Ephesians to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's what he tells those believers. But what does it mean to be strong in the Lord? What does that mean? So look around the world today and you'll see the power of Satan unleashed almost effortlessly. Have you noticed this? Jesus said that Satan has the power to sift us like wheat. It's a terrifying thought. Trish and I have been trying to keep up with the unfolding events in Afghanistan. The brutal occupation of the Taliban is resulting in the oppression and torture and murder of men, women, and children. It's a terrible, terrible thing. Even Afghan believers in Jesus are being targeted and persecuted. So transparency, here's my question in all of this. God, why don't you just shout a word and melt the faces off your enemies? I'm serious. Why, God? Are, are you watching the news, God? Are you attentive to the events around the world? <clears throat> well, I'll tell you why God doesn't do that. Because God has his own timetable and the ways of God are upside down. And we have to be prepared to grapple with that. So I'm amazed at the story of the Apostle Paul, a man who persecuted Christians and then met the very Jesus he was trying to stomp out. It's just one of the most amazing stories in all of human history. It's incredible. So... His life was dramatically changed. He went on under the power of the Holy Spirit to write much of the New Testament. A beautiful, beautiful story. <clears throat> but he maintained what I'm calling a kind of sanctified sarcasm. Have you read Paul? <laughs> read some of his letters and you'll do a double take. You really will. For example, to those insisting on the right of circumcision for salvation... Paul would say, I wish the knife would slip and that you would cut off more than you intended. I'm not making it up. That's in the Bible. Okay. And Paul's authority was continually challenged over and over and over again by those that he wrote to and those that he loved. 
those that he had laid his life down for. In fact, among the Corinthian believers at that church in Corinth, false apostles had crept in. Now, an apostle is one, one of the qualifications for an apostle is one who is a witness of the resurrected Lord. Of course, Paul qualifies because Jesus appeared to him, remember, on the road. But now these false apostles were among the Corinthian believers. And so Paul is beginning to expose them for who they are. And not only were the Corinthian believers saying, hey, we're kind of embracing or warming to these false apostles. And Paul, who do you think you are anyway? You're not that skilled at oratory. You're kind of weak in, you know, in your letters and you tell us all the time that we should be doing this. Like, Paul, really, like, who do you think you are? And they were beginning to question his authority, an authority that had been given to him by God, by the way. And so he writes to the Corinthians. I'm going to take some time today in 2 Corinthians, which is probably more like 3rd or 4th Corinthians. There are a couple of letters that we don't have, but we call it 2 Corinthians. Look at chapter 11, 2 Corinthians A couple of verses, one and five. Paul starts that chapter by saying to these believers, oh, that you would bear with me a little folly. You know what he's saying there? I'm going to needle you again, guys. Just as I've been poking at you all this time, I'm going to, here comes again, brace yourself, bear with me a little folly. And then he says, as indeed you already bear with me. You've heard me talk like this before, he's saying. Skip down to verse 5, for I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. That's sarcasm. He's talking about the false apostles. And so he's saying, you get where he's going with this? Hey guys, you know, I've been called by God. I'm not inferior to the most eminent apostle. He even now goes into a list of what he has suffered for the sake of Christ. Here are these new upstart false guys that have appeared on the scene that have absolutely no background with Jesus, and yet they're taking captives believers in the church at Corinth. And Paul would say, let me give you a little bit of my past history with Jesus. And he'll go on in, in this chapter to make a list. He'll say, hey, this is what I've suffered for Christ's sake. Uh, I've been beaten. I've slept in the cold. I've experienced hunger and thirst. And oh, remember that Damascus experience where I encountered Jesus? I was threatened. My life was threatened and I had to be let down in a basket over a wall in that city. Paul is recounting over and over and over again how he has suffered for the sake of Christ. And Paul continues needling the Corinthian believers when in chapter 12, and I would invite you to turn there, he says, it is doubtless... Not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, Paul is going to begin to tell a story and he's telling it as if this man was not himself. He says, hey, there's this guy. I heard about this guy. Now, every Bible scholar I read would suggest that Paul is actually describing his own experience. And he's describing a man who got caught up into the third heaven. Now, in Paul's day, the first heaven, pardon me, was the atmosphere. The second heaven was the stars and the galaxies. The third heaven was the very presence of God. So Paul begins to describe this experience of being caught up into the, the third heaven. And there, this man heard, what does he say? Heard 
inexpressible words not lawful to utter. He says, I, I won't boast about that guy, but I'll boast about my infirmity. So he sets the stage right here for something that we're going to unpack here together. Now, I'm not sure we fully appreciate the way Paul got his insights that he explains in his letters. Do, do we realize where this came from? Do you realize that Paul had an initial encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus? And there was marvelously saved. He placed his faith in the very Jesus he had tried to, uh, you know, whose church he had tried to persecute. But it wasn't as though Paul like chummed up with some of the guys in Jerusalem. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't hang out with people that were, that had been Christians longer than he had. You know what happened? You know how Paul learned? He learned by direct revelation of Jesus Christ. He learned in the very presence of God. Now how that happened and what that looked like, we, we don't know completely. But we know that Paul got what he communicates to you and to me directly from the Lord. So that's why, uh, as we continue to unpack this, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 7. Let's pick up there. I'm going to cover several verses there. He says, And lest I should become exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. What's he talking about? The revelations from Jesus. The way that he had been taught by Jesus. He starts by saying, and lest I should be exalted above measure so that I won't think more highly of myself. Why would he think more highly of himself? Because he's been caught up to the third heaven. He's been in the very presence of God. He's been instructed by God personally. And so that he wouldn't be sort of caught up in, in, in this and be exalted above measure. What does he say? A thorn in the flesh was given to me. A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. There it is again. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Now, this is a fascinating passage. Some of you may be familiar with it. Some of you may be seeing it for the first time. Paul is saying that so that I won't be exalted above measure because of what God has given me, because of the exposure I have had in the very presence of God and the information that I have been given, I've been given a thorn. That just means a pointy thing. I think it's safe to say it's not a pleasant thing, okay? A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan. Now, there have been lots of alternatives as to what this might be. Some suggest that it was a physical ailment. Some suggest it was an eyesight issue because he closes one epistle by C and what large letters I write in my own hand, you know, departing from his amanuensis who would have been dictated, he would have been dictating his letter to. We don't know. I will tell you this, the phrase messenger of Satan, the word messenger there, means, is angelos in Greek, it means angel of Satan. So this could actually be some sort of physical infirmity. It could actually be some sort of demonic spirit that was sent to harass Paul. And so it wasn't pleasant, it's safe to say, okay? And so Paul acknowledges this is what, and concerning this thing, uh, by the way, he says, this a messenger of Satan to, to buffet me, that means beat. Again, not a very pleasant experience. Many of us, I know myself, I'd be whining going, God, this is supposed to be easier than this. Right. Look what he went through concerning this thing. I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me just three times. I would be knocking God's door down like three times. Why would Paul be satisfied with three times? Because he trusted God enough to be satisfied with three times. That's why. Verse nine. And he, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength 
is made perfect in weakness. There, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, Paul says, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul had such confidence that he's saying, after hearing from God, which wasn't a new experience, by the way, God told him, hey, Paul, I, I, know, I know it's not pleasant. I get it. I, I, I know. But my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is all you need. I'll take care of you. Will it be easy? No, Paul. But my grace is sufficient for you. Because why? Because my strength is made perfect in Weakness. Weakness. Therefore, Paul says, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities. How come? Because God convinced him. Why did Paul say that? Because God convinced him that his grace was sufficient for Paul. Therefore, he could actually boast in those infirmities or weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, God guarantees He guarantees us what is sufficient for us. You know that? God guarantees. Nobody can say, oh God, this is so terrible. This thing I'm dealing with is so terrible. Never in the history of humankind have anyone ever dealt with this. This is more than I can bear. And God just says, you know what? My grace is sufficient for you. God will provide for every believer in Jesus a sufficiency in his grace. God's grace was sufficient for Paul. It's sufficient for us. Paul is saying, I have every right to boast in my accomplishments for Christ. But instead, I would rather boast in my weaknesses. Does your journal look like that? (laughs) Truthfully, I'm mostly sick of my weaknesses. So I love words. I love wordsmithing. I love meanings of words and all that. But I'm I'm a bit burned out by social media quips and quotes and rhyming phrases. Uh... But I do like this one from John Mark Comer when he says, when you're in a period of suffering, flip the question from how can I get out of this to what can I get out of this? Imagine that perspective for a minute. You see, Paul wants Christ's power and the path to that power is boasting in his weaknesses. Look at verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure Now he's getting a little carried away. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What? When I am weak, then I am strong. In these verses, Paul has just flipped conventional wisdom on its head. Strength in weakness is upside down. This idea is similar to what James is talking about in his tiny little epistle toward the end of the New Testament. When he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, I discovered the hard way years ago that you better write it into the job description if you hope to grow. Pain and suffering are part of the equation. Challenges, disappointments, heartache, hardships, they're part of the deal. Do you like it? No, neither do I. 
But God says we can trust him. His grace is sufficient. And no matter the hardship, God can turn that weakness into his strength. But we have to be willing to view God's work and acknowledge it as upside down. You see, if we're trying to take the conventional wisdom of the world and sort of retrofit it under this Christian umbrella, that's not Christianity. And if we could figure it all out, we wouldn't need Jesus. If you've got your four tips, five tips for success, well, I hope that's going well for you. Maybe it is outwardly. But if you want to embrace the Jesus of the Bible, you better buckle up. So one way we know we're being exposed to the truth of God is when we respond with words like this. Two words. Wait, what? (laughs) Wait, what? Because that tells us that we don't have it all figured out and that we are being exposed to the upside down truth of God. What if we said, oh, I knew that. (laughs) Really? But instead, no. We better be saying, wait, what? What are you doing, God? What are you saying? Pleasure and weakness, what? So Paul is expressing his faith that even weakness is a form of power, the power that points to God's glory and not our own. So a couple of weeks ago, I talked to you guys in a sermon about the destructive emotion of shame. I got a lot of feedback, not pushback, feedback from that sermon in really good ways. You're doing the hard work. I get it. Shame, I suggested, is not only a feeling of having done something bad, but it is a pervasive sense of not being enough. And when we begin to see shame in that light, we will understand that shame is the primary vehicle that evil uses to distort and destroy our lives. It really is that big. Shame is powerful. So shame started in the garden in Genesis and was dealt a death blow by Jesus on the cross, who despising the shame there hung uh, uh, on the cross for our sin, the sins of the entire world. And there's an important connection between shame and joy and vulnerability. Think about it this way. Those three interact. Shame leads us to isolation. Isolation strengthens shame. Shame thrives in the darkness and robs us of joy. You with me so far? Vulnerability robs shame of its power when we bring shame into the light. And ultimately, that vulnerability paves the way for joy to thrive in our lives. What an interconnection of these things. It's all through the scriptures, by the way. Maybe you haven't realized it, but today we've been talking about vulnerability. Paul welcomes his weakness in his life. He has a perspective that allows seeing that in a way that's out of the box, it's upside down. That's vulnerable. So continue to look throughout the literature and you're going to discover from multiple sources that vulnerability is uncertainty. Vulnerability is risk. It's humility. It's openness. It's being unguarded or open-handed. Vulnerability is willing to risk exposure. I know it's scary, isn't it? (laughs) 
without vulnerability, we'd remain in hiding, just like Adam and Eve did after they sinned. Genesis 3, 8 says this, and they heard the sound, literally the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool, literally the wind of the day, a reference to the Holy Spirit, I believe. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What is the instinct for us when shame invades our lives? The instinct is not vulnerability, I'll tell you that. The instinct is to hide. The instinct is to pull back, is to somehow protect ourselves. Well, where do we do that? In darkness. We run and we hide even from God. I get it as human nature to want to hide, especially when we are held captive by shame. So one of my favorite scenes in the movie Kung Fu Panda. <clears throat> yes, I said Kung Fu Panda. Is when Poe goes on an eating rampage, hiding in the kitchen. He's caught in the act of eating monkey's almond cookies. Hidden in a jar on the top shelf. And when confronted with crumbs on his face, he simply says, don't tell monkey. That's the line. Don't tell monkey. He wants to continue to hide. He wants to continue to live in secret. So years ago, <coughs> Trisha and I were house parents for a group of eight mentally disabled men. It was a fantastic commentary on society. The residence was a quad of apartments, four apartments connected together, and they were connected through the closets. So you could get through the closets to each of the other units. And the closet that was by our unit that went into the next unit for the men was actually the pantry. It's where all the food was kept. And so one day I thought, hey, I better go check on the guys, see what's going on. I walked through the pantry into the room where a couple of the guys were sitting in a den there. And uh, as soon as I walked in that room, one of the guys looked up at me and said, I didn't eat those cookies. <laughs> I didn't eat those cookies. <laughs> Vulnerability is hard. It's hard to come clean. It's hard to say, oh, God, this is like slightly terrifying for me. Who's going to catch me if I jump out here in space? So when we get in touch with the power of vulnerability, we'll want to bring God, our entire selves, holding nothing back from God. The psalmists seem to understand this truth. They're particularly attuned to their emotions. Psalmists that say things like, where are you, God? Are you there? Or God, you seem far away. I'm in despair. Or, God, how long will you hide your face from me? So being in touch with our vulnerable emotions means that we can bring all that we are to God. For example, Psalm 91, the first part of that verse. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Everything. Psalm 103, 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and what? And all that is within me. Bless his holy name. I like the way Miriam Greenspan says it in her book, Healing Through Dark Emotions. She says, because we are vulnerable, life hurts. We are not here to be free of pain. We are here to have our hearts broken by life, to learn to live with vulnerability and to turn pain into love. So my calling as a pastor gives me daily opportunities for personal vulnerability. 
And I'll see those opportunities as I'm, if I'm paying attention. So can I be vulnerable with you and vulnerably admit a few things? First, I don't have all the answers. I, I know that comes as a shock to so many of you. And not to those of you who no longer carry my picture in your wallet, okay? Here's another one. Thank you, honey. <clears throat> Here's another one. After 50 years of being a Christian, I still sin. 50 years. And I can be very loving and I can be very impatient. Here's one. I'm not as physically strong as I used to be, even though in my mind I am. Okay? Or, here's one, my hair is coming off the top of my head and coming out of my ears and nose. I don't, yeah. And here's one, I like to think of myself as intelligent, creative, and diligent, but I'm nothing without Jesus. Nothing. Here's the way I said it, because I like to try to put words to some of what I'm feeling. Vulnerability frees us. It reminds us that we have nothing to prove, no image to manage, no pain worth hiding. We're free to live in our identity in Christ. We're free to be strong in our weakness. We're free to gratefully endure hardship. God's grace is all we need. So it might seem natural to equate spiritual health with an absence of weakness and vulnerability. Uh, if you've been listening this morning, you'll resonate with the fact that that's a mistake. Sometimes power and strength are found where we least expect them. Could it be that running from weakness is actually a weakness? We become spiritually healthy when we see the value of humility, weakness, and vulnerability. All powerful responses when combined with trust in God. So when it comes to strength, God's ways are upside down. I believe you to be the kind of people like me who want to know more about what God is like and who want to begin to live as though that is true. Well, friends, fair warning. That means embracing things that seem to make no sense in the eyes of the world. But God will give us his grace. He promises he'll give us his grace. We thank you, our Father, for your generous grace. How it's lavished on us, undeserving as we are. You are faithful. God, we confess to you that in uh, our weakness and in our confusion, we often don't understand the way that you work. Help us to be people of faith that believe you in spite of what we see with our eyes, that trust you deeply in the core of our being knowing, God, that you know what you're doing and that even in difficulties, we find your strength expressed. And we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.